Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And what's interesting about meetings and information is that we can't really have that workflow without having a healthy approach to those spaces. So if we have, you know, most of our day spent in meetings, first of all, we're not doing the work unless the work is happening in the meeting. Um, which is rare. And, and the meetings themselves are often trying to kind of, um, you know, comply, control, route, uh, manage that work in a way that slows it down. And so it's about, oh, I got to wait for this meeting to get permission. I got to wait for this meeting to do a review with my boss to pitch what's going on. I have to do a lot of meetings to prepare for meetings because God forbid I look vulnerable or stupid or like I don't know the answer in a meeting. So I'm going to have five meetings to prepare for the meeting with my boss where I'm just supposed to show him work in progress. I mean, and I see this stuff all the time. I'm not exaggerating at all. I have I had a client a couple of years ago where the average time in meetings per week for the executive team was 45 hours a week. Um, and so 45 hours a week in meeting, yeah, that was through lunch every day. And, and it was, you know, all this politicking and one-on-oneing and group meetings that, you know, were not properly facilitated, et cetera. So one of the things that we advocate for is really, um, you know, a meeting moratorium, right? Kill all the meetings, figure out where it hurts. What are you missing that you don't have? And then slowly rebuild that, um, with, with, you know, consent from everyone involved and with deliberate kind of practice. So if we're going to rebuild Monday's status meeting, let's build the best damn status meeting in existence. What are the, what do people know out there? What are the emergent practices? What are the best agile teams in the world doing? And let's kind of step into those practices before we add 15 other things, because (laughs) one meeting held well, will replace five meetings held terribly. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Aaron, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Christine Lai, who's also a former guest here on The Unmistakable Creative. And she told me a little bit about what you guys were up to. And I was uh, fortunate to get a copy of your new book, Brave New Work, which we will get into in explicit detail. But I want to ask you a question that I think is very fitting given the nature of your work. And that is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Great question. Um, I Yeah, it's interesting. I sort of wasn't part of any specific kind of stereotypical group. I was a bit of a of an outlier in the sense that I didn't really feel like I belonged in any of the normal uh, troops. So I was not, I did a lot of theater, but I wasn't a theater kid. I played music, but I wasn't a band kid. I, you know, did, um, you know, was interested in business and inventing things, but I wasn't part of the, you know, future business leaders. So I definitely sat at my own table and I found that I just 
you know, found those other misfit toys in the, you know, in the high school culture there and, and, you know, formed tight bonds with them and, and had a, a little bit of a group of our own, a group, a group without a name. Yeah. So even how did that shape and influence your choices as far as work, as far as careers, as, as far as kind of the path you took? Well, I think, you know, part of it stemmed from just where I grew up and not really feeling like my, you know, I could find my people. But even when I moved to New York and, and met other people that were interested in the same things I was and kind of traveled the world more, I have always been very interested in building new community and in, in building new companies, building new cultures, bringing people together that, you know, otherwise wouldn't be together. And so I think, you know, I've been a serial entrepreneur since then. And that's been a, a big part of why I really, really like bringing, uh, bringing different people together and kind of creating a new identity. Where did you grow up? Um, so I was born in Ohio, did uh, a tour of duty in St. Louis, Missouri, and then grew up uh, for the most part in Colorado. And parents like, uh, yeah, I mean, given that we're talking specifically about work, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what are the things that your parents taught you about work? Yeah, that's such an interesting one for me because my uh, my parents are very different in a way. My mother was always, you know, super creative, right brain. She was a theater teacher, uh, high school theater teacher for you know twenty years, and was um, you know all about uh, community and creativity and staying up till two in the morning with forty kids over at the house and hosting you know potluck dinners and and just like very very generous with her time and energy in in serving that community and in helping people learn but was not really interested at all in, you know, the world of business or starting companies or anything like that. And then my father, on the other hand, is, you know, second generation entrepreneur and, um, you know, has done a bunch of different things in that space. And so was always very uh, interested in kind of the analytical side. And, uh, you know, what does it take to bring people around to your ideas and teaching me about sales and, you know, how to how to connect with people and figure out what they need and things like that. So they were almost like two sides of my brain and my personality in a way that kind of came together and someone that, you know, works in, in the world of business, but brings uh, a lot of the energy of kind of community building and disruption and challenge that, that maybe speaks more to my mother's theater background. Um, <clears throat> how did you combine the two to, together? And, and, you know, how did that sort of manifest in the first iterations of, of the things that you did with your own career? I think the, you know, the earliest iterations for me, first of all, my, you know, my career has been basically following the most interesting problem I can find to the next most interesting problem I can find. So there hasn't been really a rhyme or reason other than that. But um, when I was in school, I got, you know, less and less enamored with going into the field of, you know, science and medicine, uh, for reasons we can get into if you're interested. But um, I, I basically, you know, really started to get interested in the psychology of brands, cults, communities, people that come together and have an almost irrational affinity for one another. And so my first business was really in that space was about brand strategy and brand experience. So how do you take some, you know, the values and the experience that you want to create and kind of the purpose that is present in the beginning of, of uh, an endeavor and make sure that that is true and consistent throughout the entire, um, you know, the entire brand experience, all the, all the various touch points. So that was sort of uh, where I got my start in, in brand strategy and then really just followed that thread. So that from, from there I noticed, Oh gosh, the brands doing the most interesting things in culture and disrupting culture the most happened to be technology brands. So what's that all about? And followed that into the creation of a business that was all about digital strategy and disruptive technology and exponential technology and how that was changing and shaping culture. And then sure enough, noticed that, hey, you know, it's less and less about what is the technology and what is the change and more and more about the fact that big systems do not have the capacity to learn and adapt 
whatever it is, whether it be a cultural phenomenon or a technological phenomenon. So now I've, I'm interested in that. And so that's kind of been the, the thread and the through line for my, for my career is following those lily pads uh, to where I am now. Although I do feel like now I've sort of settled in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, the thing that struck me, one is, is, you know, what did make you lose interest in medicine? I do want to know uh, if there was something in particular that kind of said, you know, this is not for me that caused you to do that. Yeah, you know, what's funny is it was, um, I could smell the impending bureaucracy. Uh, the idea that I would not be, I would not have autonomy in my career. I would not have the ability to shape and guide my own choices. And, you know, there's so many governing bodies and compliance and regulation and, and hierarchical uh, systems in that space. And I just realized, oh my God, I'm going to be a lab rat in a basement somewhere. I'm not going to be able to kind of, uh, you know, set my own course. Obviously that's changed for, you know, entrepreneurs in the healthcare space recently to, to a certain extent, but it, you know, it was at the time a pretty compelling reason not to play. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I think that the, you know, the other thing that, that really struck me is that you said that you have sort of followed this thread of whatever problem it is that you're interested in. How do other people do that? How do other people figure out what that is for them? Well, I think that, you know, the easiest thing to do is just figure out what you won't shut up about. So, you know, almost everybody has things that they have uh, passionate energy about. And I find that in, in addition to that, most people are pretty happy to tell you what they, you know, like to complain about, right? The things they really get under their skin. And so for me, that um, that tension was always the driver. Like, what am I noticing that I feel an energy around, whether it's a frustration or, or a you know, tension or a, an excitement or something like that? Um, and I just really listen to that, tune into that. And it doesn't always happen quickly. But what I tend to do is I feed that uh, feeling. So I feed the feeling with books, with podcasts, with articles, with conversations, with seeking out people that know more about that space than I do. And when I've fed it enough, what usually happens is, you know, a business emerges or a way of being or a role or something I can do. Um, so I, I sort of listen for feelings, feed them, and then, you know, follow the follow the thread from there. Hmm. The other thing that struck me that you mentioned was looking at what it is that led to people to have this irrational affinity towards each other, uh, whether it's around a brand, whether it's around a cult. What causes that? Like, from I'd be really interested to hear from both perspectives, from the cult side, having been a member of a pseudo cult, uh, having interviewed people who've been members of cults, and also from the brand side, what is that irrational affinity? Why is it that that occurs? I think at the end of the day, the answer to both questions has a lot to do with how we construct our identity. Uh -huh. So if you, you know, if you're thinking about brands, somewhere in the 20th century, we moved from really, you know, being an, e an economy and a, and a, you know, civilization that's really just trying to like, have a loaf of bread to eat, right? To a company that or to a, a group of people that's saying, you know, the, the, ki the brand of bread I eat says something about who I am in the world. It says something to me about me, and it says something to others about me. And so it things these things now hold such deeper meaning. And I think when you start playing with identity, we're, you know, we're incredible creatures in terms of telling ourselves stories to be consistent with our own, you know, impressions of ourselves, to make our, you know, behavior that we do naturally kind of match with our um, ethos and our beliefs. And so I think in, in both cases, the, the kind of unnatural affinity comes from a narrative, a story we tell ourselves about who am I and what am I a part of and what does that mean? What is, how does that make me special or different? Or how does that keep me safe? Uh, how does that help me deal with my, you know, my fear or my, um, you know, my desire for pleasure for all the, you know, human needs, etc. So I think on the cult side, obviously, they 
prey on that a little bit. Um, you know, if, if you want to call the definition of a cult uh, a community that, um, you know, preys on people's needs and insecurities, maybe too much. Um, in many ways, I think brands are very similar, right? You could argue that some brands are kind of massive uh, TV industrial complex cults, right, that have made you feel bad about yourself in order to get you to buy something um, and to buy into to an ideology. So I think they can be used for good or ill, as all technology can. You can use it for positive or negative things. But um, but yeah, I think that's the thing. It's about identity building and it's about uh, stories that we tell ourselves. Um, you know, as Seth Godin says, uh, people like us do things like wow. this. I think that's what it's all about. Yeah. What is the story for you now and how has it changed over time? Um, well, I think the story I'm telling myself now is that a, a lot of the institutions and systems that we have built over the last century that have gotten us to where we are, are in a state of kind of graceful degradation or decline that not everyone's noticing. And, um, and I feel, you know, I guess both um, a, a privilege and a, you know, kind of requirement to, to try to do something about that. I think that when... Um, when the systems around us need to change, when there's revolution or evolution, it can be violent. And I don't mean that just in the physical sense, but it can be kind of disruptive and violent. And there can be, you know, people that are um, victimized by that, or it can be more, um, you know, handled more gracefully. And it can be done through, you know, the deliberate action of the members in the community themselves. So the story I'm telling myself is by focusing on changing how we work, we can have levers on all the other systems, right? If we change how we work, it'll change how we show up in community, how we show up in politics. It'll change how we treat the environment and our ecology. Um, so I'm sort of, I'm maybe deluding myself, but I'm believing that kind of focusing on the unit of the team at work and how we treat each other and how we show up to work might be kind of the, you know, the center of, of a much broader echo of effect and impact. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think that makes uh, a perfect segue to actually start talking about the book. And the first thing that I, I highlighted, you wrote, what's hiding inside of each of our organizations is a set of assumptions that we rarely notice or reconsider. We've inherited them from those who came before us. These assumptions and practices they inspire are kind of like an operating system running silently in the background, the foundation upon which everything else is built. Now, the things that I, I wonder is, why is it that we don't notice or reconsider these assumptions. I mean, what we're really good at, right, is, you know, and, and you know this from all your other episodes, we're pretty good at reducing our cognitive load by using heuristics and rules of thumb and norms to guide most of our day-to-day decision-making. And so if we were questioning everything around us all the time, we would be <laughs> totally useless as yeah. human beings. So, of course, when we walk into a boardroom in our first job and we're 22 years old and they say, oh, yeah, this is Monday status meeting and we all come in here and sit here and hate this, but we do it every week. Um, we sort of go like, all right, yeah, okay, that's how things work. <laughs> and and we just assume that people, you know, better, more experienced people than us have thought this stuff through. Uh -huh. um, but the reality is that, you know, for most of the norms inside business culture today, you know, they were invented on a factory floor 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, when, you know, gl globalization and conglomerates were happening, or 20 years ago, they were not invented, uh, you know, in kind of a post Facebook, post Trump economy. Uh -huh. And so there, you know, I, I often joke, like, I walk into a room with, with people for our very first meeting, and we look and I'm like, hey, there's a, a table and chairs in here. Why is that? Yeah. Why, why do we have a table and chairs in the meeting room? 
Uh-huh. You know, what assumptions are baked into that, that we need to sit, that we're going to be in here for a long time. So we got to have comfortable seats <laughs> that we're going to be looking at paper. So we need to have a place to put it. Um, you know, there's all these assumptions baked into that. And some of them are true for some meetings. But for 50% of the meetings I coach, we don't need a table and chairs. We need a marker, a wall and our feet. Uh huh. Wow. All right. So let's let's actually get into this whole idea of an organizational operating system. I know that you broke it down into, if I remember correctly, I think nine or 10 pieces. Um, just looking at my notes. 12 here. actually well, in the book. It yeah. used to be nine, well, but okay, for the but book's research, we updated that, it, right? You got to upgrade. I realized I had it as eight or nine, but I, I have all 12 written down here. <laughs> I just didn't number all of them. Uh, yeah. But let's, Too let's many. Get, yeah. The, I mean, I, I want to do a deep dive into this because to me, this was really kind of the meat of the book. Uh, and let's start with the very beginning, which is this idea of purpose. I mean, you talk about purpose sort of through three lenses. One is what you call fractal purpose. The second is steering metrics. And the third is essential intent. Can you explain all that to us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think purpose is one of those things that, you know, at some level it exists the moment anything is created. There's always intent. There's always, um, you know, meaning in human systems behind, you know, we do something to have an impact or to have or to create some outcome for ourselves or others. But I think what's interesting about purpose is it's really one of the gateways to some of these other better ways of working, right? So if we have clarity about purpose, if we have clarity about the intent, and this could be, you know, you know, talk about fractal purpose, this could be at the organizational level or the team level or even the level of a role. Maybe a role that I hold has a really clear purpose that I understand. What that allows me to do then is use that as a sort of, um, you know, lattice for my judgment and for my effort. So instead of having to have, you know, a mile long job description, if you give me a really good purpose statement for a role that I hold, that should be sufficient. That should be enough for me to go, all right, the outcome you want is really well-trained people ready to hit the ground running. My job is on border. Okay, I can go figure out the rest. If I'm a if I'm a talented, creative, you know, participant in the new economy, I should be able to go as a humble learner and go figure out how to deliver on that outcome. And the bullet points of my accountabilities and responsibilities and all that other stuff would be nice, but are not necessary. And the same is true at, a, at an organizational level. So we we have the ability to steer when we have vector, when we have a direction and a, and a sense of where we're trying to go. And it doesn't mean that we have to keep it forever the same, right? Because, you know, at Microsoft, it was a computer on every desktop, and then suddenly it wasn't. We are, you know, check, and now what? So it's okay if it evolves, but the idea is that we all should have a a, a reasonable sense of where that is so that we can steer in that direction. And then we can use things like learning metrics, which are basically just metrics, but with a very different intent. So most metrics have been turned into targets, right? They've been turned, they've been gamified so that I have to hit the metric in order to succeed or be recognized or be paid or keep my job. But a learning metric is there really just to help me steer. So it tells me a story about whether we're moving closer to or further from our purpose, our, our outcome or our essential intent. And so I think that, um, you know, that's kind of the big idea with, with why purpose is the first space that I talk about and why I think it's kind of foundational to a lot of this self-management, self-organization kind of, you know, emergent operations that, that can happen when that's clear. Yeah. Um, the essential intent concept you asked about is, is uh, really just something from, from a book uh, called Essentialism by Greg McCown that I really like, yep. which is basically this idea that, you know, vision or purpose is so far out, right? It's 100 years out or it, it's timeless in nature. And, you know, the quarter's objectives and kind of your OKRs, if you're at Google or your objectives and, you know, in another company are pretty close. Those are, those are living in the quarter. Those are day to day. 
but we're missing that sense of like, what's going to need to happen in the next two or three years to unlock the next step, the next chapter towards our purpose. And so I like the idea of the essential intent to kind of help us see, you know, short, medium and long term in terms of our purpose, in terms of our intent. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there was another thing that really struck me about the steering metrics. I, I remember highlighting this about the fact that you guys stopped counting fans and followers on social media, yeah. uh, which it, it was one of those things that I, I remember I, I had a friend very just straight up asked me, he's training, I told him, I, I, you know, and I've been a pretty vocal critic of social media, particularly over the last year. Uh, based on my conversations with people like Cal Newport and my own research sure. and experiences, I'm finding more and more that this is just a giant waste of time that really is entertaining. Uh, and my, my friend asked a really just blunt question. He said, do you, do you make any money because of Facebook? And it's a hard, <laughs> hard sort of question to, to kind of say, actually, no. And for something that makes me absolutely no money, I've spent a lot of time and attention on it. Right. And I'm not alone. Yeah. Billions of people do the same. They absolutely do. And I think, again, going back to kind of our identity and some of the cognitive biases that we hold, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, there are companies with billions of dollars in resources spending every waking moment trying to get you to get stuck in a loop where you spend more time and attention on their platform. I'm not the first person to say that, but it is, it's sort of a fundamental fatal flaw, right? That they're, you know, at the end of the day, if their business model is more eyeballs for longer, then the things they're going to do by definition probably can't be, you know, socially positive for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, well, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns and and I think we've definitely hit it. Oh, and for us, it was just, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't steer based on it. We're too small. Mm -hmm. We're too distributed around the world. And, you know, if we have 10 people sign up or a hundred people sign up for our newsletter or our Twitter or whatever, we don't know what that means. We don't know what we did or didn't do that drove that. Um, to any level of, you know, with any level of sophistication. So we've actually gone away from that and gone to a storytelling modality where we ask people when they sign up for our newsletter, literally, why did you sign up? Tell us a story. Tell us what's going on with you in full prose. And we learn way more from those I'm stories so than, you know, that, that people send in. <laughs> what's that? I am so going to steal that. Yeah, do it. It's great. I mean, it really works. And we have, we have like, when you get your first newsletter, there's a heartfelt note from the guy that runs it at our company. His name's Sam. Yeah. And uh, it just says, Hey, I'm Sam. I'm a real human being. I care why you signed up. Tell me. Yeah. And people do it all the time. It's crazy. That's amazing. Well, let's get into the idea of authority. Yeah, I think that this also, what I liked about the way you set up this operating system idea is that you went really deep on all of them, but you kind of hit it hard with certain points. Uh, and you said, you know, when you join a legacy organization, the default assumption is that you don't have the right to do anything unless you're given permission. This stems from a theory of control that believes the best way to eliminate risk is through compliance. And yet that is really in a lot of ways, the way in which our schools our companies and damn near everything in our lives is run. Like we reward compliance and then we're surprised that we breed it. So you know, how do we, how do we change this? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it is a default assumption and as a result, it kind of spreads, right? So if the only media that you ever see is, you know, devil wears Prada when it comes to thinking about what a boss is, then you sort of go into the workforce with a very, you know, minimal view of what's possible. So I think I think it is it is in the drinking water. I think the way we change it is by having people with power, leaders, founders, managers, um, you know, politicians, others who have that power hold space and so and sort of you know allow that space to be filled by people using their authority. So one of the stories I tell in the book is uh, you know about um, 
David Marquette, who was the captain of a, of a nuclear sub. And, you know, when people would come to him looking for orders, he would just say, what do you intend to do? And I think that's, it's sort of on leaders everywhere to, you know, before you go full blown, you know, brave new work and, and do everything I've talked about, even just that, just taking a step back and leaving space for others to kind of use their innate authority, use their innate autonomy to, to make a choice or make a decision, help them do it by asking questions, but actually, you know, measure the number of times you give an instruction or a piece of feedback versus ask a question in a week and just flip the, flip the ratio. Wow. All right. So let's talk, uh, you know, there's certain ones that I want to do a deeper dive into. And I think that if we try to go through all 12, <laughs> we're going to spend, oh, yeah, we'll be here for yeah. four hours. Yeah. So uh, let's talk briefly about structure, uh, mainly because of the fact that it is one of those things that's being consistently challenged. You know, you say that centralized functions, as we currently conceive them, are not compatible with complexity. They're too slow and too far from reality and working under misaligned incentives. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, what's happened with functions is that because, because of our desire to kind of uh, develop people within a field, within an expertise, and because of our desire to consolidate and cut costs, we bring all these, you know, folks of a feather together around the world. So we have groups of marketers and groups of lawyers and groups of risk people and groups of, you know, financial folks, et cetera. And, you know, it's all under the guise that it's cheaper to have them together and that they can be developing each other and providing feedback and building kind of a, a you know, theory of the case for their part of the organization. The problem is that we don't create value that way. So, you know, if we if we have all the lawyers stay and everybody else goes home, they can't do anything. There's no there's no output there that's really meaningful if if the business is, you know, making smart thermostats or making cars. The lawyers are not enough. Um, none of us are enough, right? And so it's when different skills come together that we create value. And for that reason, there's sort of an imbalance between the workflow that we need in order to create things and the structure that we have that we have to inhabit. And so you see people typically frustrated because they're often waiting on another function, another person somewhere else in the business to do something for them so they can do their job and continue to finish the project, the product, whatever the case may be. Um, and there's a backlog in that space because it's all been pulled together into a single choke point with, you know, ample bureaucracy on top of that. So I think what I'm advocating for is not that there's never a need for centralized anything. I mean, certainly things that make us faster at the edge, like shared data or shared software platforms or things like that make sense. But what I am advocating for is that it very rarely makes sense to have people with a single skill set cohabitate and work in this, you know, work in a silo and kind of report into each other. Um, that's that's pretty uh, archaic thinking. And I think it really holds us back. So we can move to much more fluid structures that take advantage of us. And not only that, but take advantage of our many different faces and skills, right? So I'm not just good at finance. I'm also a great cook. I'm also a great mentor. I'm also, you know, a great brainstorming partner. And if I can operate in a marketplace model where I have roles and projects to inhabit, and I build a mix for myself, um, then I get to have a much richer experience and I get to contribute in a much uh, richer way. And I think we see that in a lot of the cases that we that we covered. Yeah, it's interesting as we're having this conversation, like the structure of how you put these things together is finally making sense to me. It seems like they're all groups, <laughs> like perfect groups of three, because as I'm, you know, wanting to get to the you know, thinking about, you know, some of my other notes here, I'm like, oh, you actually group these very fittingly for me to ask the next question. So, you know, you talk about in you know steps four, five, and six strategy, resources, and innovation. So I guess the, the question for me then is, you know, how do you leverage the resources you have, develop an effective strategy, and use that to innovate? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, really, this is all about um, 
bets, right? So strategy is about understanding what matters in a market or in a in a you know problem space, uh, in a mark you know you know in a customer segment or what have you. What are the what are the sort of lever points? What are the things that if you get it right, if you take a non conventional approach or an, uh, rather an unconventional approach, um, you get outsized outcomes, right? So strategy is all about that game of what matters and how will we overcome that or how will we leverage that that knowledge or that belief that we have. And sometimes that's, you know, about kind of amassing power or position or things that are more kind of traditional, um, you know, structure. Uh, but it's also possible that it's just about taking a, you know, a counterintuitive approach. So when Airbnb says, you know, what matters more to uh, a guest is feeling like they're part of the community, like they're at home, like they're a, a local then, you know, that matters more than hospitality and comfort and, and fit and finish. You know, most of the hotel chains were like, nah, that's wrong. That's not the right strategy. Um, but it turned out it was a good strategy. It was counterintuitive. But it's true that a lot of people certainly in, you know, in the up and coming generations, prioritize those things differently. And so that strategy has paid off and will continue to pay off until, you know, the next kind of uh, landslide occurs. I think what's interesting is once you have a sense of what those priorities are, both in the long term and the short term, then you have uh, a resource allocation problem, which is how do we how do we make bets with our people, with our stuff and with our money that will match to the the purpose and the strategy and that sort of takes advantage of our structure. So you can see how these things all start to really feed each other. And when it comes to resource allocation, you know, one of the things that we believe in this matches to the the authority space is that you know, all of us are smarter than one of us, right? So when we all try to guess the weight of the cow, the average answer is the most accurate one, right? When when you sort of look at uh, Wisdom of the Crowds and other books like that. So, so what I find with resource allocation is getting more transparency, more data, more, more agency from people to both, you know, influence how they spend their time, where they spend their time, where they spend money, um, and doing that kind of out in public, so to speak, inside the, inside the organization's walls, um, is great. And so we can do everything from futures markets where people put, you know, monopoly money down on projects and indicate what they think is going to perform really well, which by the way, is an incredible exercise for any listener to do with a team, put all the projects and initiatives and, and functions on the wall and have people spend their monopoly money, how they would spend it for the upcoming year or quarter. Um, what comes up will blow your mind. It's also cool to hear people realize the consequences of those choices. So suddenly they look at the wall and it's like, oh, wow, we didn't fund the people that bring lunch every Friday. <laughs> Are we not going to have lunch on Friday? You know, like, are we going to, are we going to want to adjust this? Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, and then also, you know, this uh, thing I talk about in the book called boat with your feet. Like if you want to work on a different project, why do we live in a world where you're not allowed to go do that? Right. And, and either you'll add value and it'll be, you know, evident or you won't. And that'll be evident, but to sort of build the understanding of where you can add the most value and where you feel the, the most alive through practice and through trial and error, rather than waiting for some authority figure to tell you you get to take the next assignment or the next promotion, um, you know, things of that nature. So that that comes up a lot. And then lastly, in the innovation space, I really think that's just about um, not just how we spend our, you know, time, money, etc., but between which projects and which bets. So what I like to think about kind of the, the diversity of approaches um, and the difference between things like standards and, you know, and people that are diverging from those standards when it comes to innovation, certainly we all think about the lab. We think about 3M inventing the post-it note or something. But there's also the innovation of like, this is the way accounts payable, you know, sends out their checks today. And is there a better way to do it tomorrow? And so what we encourage teams to do is 
you know, always have some bets that are going in a more random, more divergent, more disruptive direction, and always have some bets that are, you know, doubling down on what's working, and be mindful about what you choose and why. So, you know, in nature, a lot of the systems I studied there, um, when they have high information, when there's a, you know, a ripe apple in the middle of the floor, the ants all converge on that apple, except for the fact that 5% or 10% hang back and continue to operate randomly looking for the next apple. And I think what is interesting about companies is we kind of suck at that. So we, when we find something that works, we really put in all the roles and structures and regulations and processes and policies to try to keep that you know golden goose producing eggs. But we often forget that we have to keep looking across the fitness landscape for what's going to matter next. And so it's you know for every activity, for every process, for every function, for every product, there is that landscape and there has to be a conscious kind of bet setting going on. It's so funny you say that. Uh, we were having a conversation the other day with me and my content strategist and we we're talking about sort of, you know, I mean, I lead a lot of the creative stuff. Like to me, my job is to create content. He comes to me with product ideas and says, these are aligned with your, this is what's aligned with your expertise. So let's create it. And so we're, we're working uh, on taking, you know, we started, we did this animated series a while back. And what I realized was that, wow, we could take just the audio from the animated series and we would have a whole new segment of the show. Right. And so we, done, we did that on Friday and it's a lot less cost prohibitive than animating. Well, it turns out that animating isn't that expensive anymore. We actually went and had a whiteboard video made. Uh, of one of our recent episodes, which is on YouTube. And, you know, if you're listening, we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. But it was interesting because we got into a discussion about the video. And right. he's like, this isn't up to the standard of what I've seen from you. And I said, look, I'm like, we don't have $5,000 to do what we did before. Uh, and it, so it would, and it's funny because I was reading Moneyball this morning. And, and that's why right. I mentioned this. And like, as I was reading you know, Moneyball, I thought to myself, wow, the, the thing that we're, we're, our argument is about the value of home runs or the value of getting on base. And what I, I said is the problem with home runs is that the percentage of make, hitting them is low. <laughs> you go and actually look at the statistics from baseball. That's right. Uh, and it's an unreliable strategy. And then so the result of, of getting on base is, yeah, maybe this thing doesn't meet your you know super high standards the first time. But you kind of look at prolific writers, prolific creators it's getting on base, not necessarily home. Like for every time they get on base, there's maybe one big home run. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just want to bunt. I want to bunt my way all the way to the series. Yeah. Wow. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern. That's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, well, so the next piece of this, I think, that is, is really, really relevant, and it was uh, you know, something you and I were just talking about uh, before we hit record here, was you know, workflow meetings and information, all of which in my mind are just a clusterfuck of inefficiency. And uh, so one, in your own research in this process, what are the things that you found that were incredibly disturbing? Uh, and what are the things that you think people need to change? Well, I think what's interesting is that workflow kind of matches to uh, to structure in a way, right? So not only, you know, did we inherit the management class and the thinkers and doers from, you know, Taylor and Ford and others at the turn of the century. But we also inherited this idea that the way we do the work gets standardized into a certain set of processes and those processes reflect that bureaucracy. And so, uh, you know, having 15 people approve something and having, you know, processes that don't allow you to take action or test and learn, et cetera. Um, I've worked with many clients where there are people in the organization working on product who are not allowed to talk to customers, <laughs> things like that, um, which are just bonkers, you know. And, and so essentially what it means is that um, the workflow that we have is is broken right the the workflow that we what we need in order to create value we all know what that is and that's the informal structure of the organization kind of figuring it out so we do these little end runs and we loophole and we talk by the water cooler and we ask for favors and we politic and we do whatever it takes to get the thing out the door but it almost never maps to what the written down sort of policy about workflow is 
Um, and what's interesting about that is that, you know, part of the bureaucracy of bad workflow is just denying the idea that we operate in complexity. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, we, we more and more operate in a world of high dynamics, high rate of change, uh, you know, high uncertainty, high volatility. And as a result, we need a different approach. So, you know, the, the analogy I often use is if you're in a room with gold bullion in the middle and I tell you to get it to your car, the best way to do that is a line of lemmings, just a little assembly line. Everybody hands the bars over and it ends up in the car and everything's great. Um, I sort of equate that to like doing business 60 years ago or something. If you were the only, you know, if there were three brands of cereal in the aisle, um, now the lights are off and the gold is moving. So now how do you operate? Well, if the lights are off and the gold is moving, we need frequent and high, you know, transparent communication calling out. I feel this, I see, you know, I heard this, I, I have a sense of where I'm doing. You need small moves, frequent moves, lots of feeling, lots of touching getting more data as you go so that when you do encounter something, you can say, all right, I got something here. Let's take advantage of it. And you keep moving and you're operating as a system, as a sort of macro super organism in the room rather than a bunch of lemmings. And so I think what what happens then is that workflow has to match. And obviously this is one space where we've had the most, um, we've had the most talk with the, a very minimal amount of walk in business culture. So there's lots of conferences and certifications and people talking about agile and lean, right? Um, we all know those words. Those words are bandied about readily by managers and leaders all around the world. But when it actually comes to working in an agile way or working in a lean way, understanding the theory of constraints, understanding what test and learn really means, what iteration really means, um, we're, we're still pretty anemic. And so I think that's what workflow is all about. It's about really sinking into those ideas and figuring out how to limit the amount of work in progress that you have, how to focus on, you know, kind of a Kanban-like sense of, of flow, what's moving through the system, how much can we get done, what will we say yes to, what will we say no to. And what's interesting about meetings and information is that we can't really have that workflow without having a healthy approach to those spaces. So if we have, you know, most of our day spent in meetings, first of all, we're not doing the work unless the work is happening in the meeting, um, which is rare. And, and the meetings themselves are often trying to kind of, um, you know, comply, control, route, uh, manage that work in a way that slows it down. And so it's about, oh, I got to wait for this meeting to get permission. I got to wait for this meeting to do a review with my boss to pitch what's going on. I have to do a lot of meetings to prepare for meetings because God forbid I look vulnerable or stupid or like I don't know the answer in a meeting. So I'm going to have five meetings to prepare for the meeting with my boss <laughs> where I'm just supposed to show him work in progress. Yeah. I mean, and I see this stuff all the time. I'm not exaggerating at all. I have I had a client a couple of years ago where the average time in meetings per week for the executive team was 45 hours a week. Um, and so 45 hours a week in meeting. Yeah, that was through lunch every day. And, and it was, you know, all this politicking and one-on-oneing and group meetings that, you know, were not properly facilitated, et cetera. So one of the things that we advocate for is really, um, you know, a meeting moratorium, right? Kill all the meetings, figure out where it hurts. What are you missing that you don't have? And then slowly rebuild that, um, with, with, you know, consent from everyone involved and with deliberate kind of practice. So if we're going to rebuild Monday's status meeting, let's build the best damn status meeting in existence. What are the, what do people know out there? What are the emergent practices? What are the best agile teams in the world doing? And let's kind of step into those practices before we add 15 other things, because (laughs) one meeting held well will replace five meetings held terribly. So, so that's, you know, that's the meeting space. And then the information space is hilarious because one of the number one reasons we have meetings is, you guessed it, 
we don't have the information we need to do our job uh-huh. because we operate in these worlds where everything is in a silo, everything's locked down, there's privacy concerns, there's security concerns. And of course, there's turf wars where it's like, oh, you know what? If I don't tell anyone else how to reboot the server, my job is safe. So I'm not telling anyone else how to reboot the server. And so what tends to happen is that we hoard information so that we don't have the information that we need. And I think this part of the of the canvas of the OS is critical because when we have high information symmetry, when everybody has access to all the same information, different people can find the jewels in there, the little insights, the little breakthroughs. They can find the things that they need and they can make better decisions. So back to authority, I don't want to give people autonomy if they don't have good information because then they'll just make shitty decisions because they have bad information. So I want to have high information. I want to have disciplined, deliberate, minimum viable meeting, you know, kind of op rhythm. And I want to have a workflow that matches the, the way we create value. So that, you know, that's where this stuff really all fits together. Yeah, I, one, I, you know, I remember reading the section on information uh, about this, and it was so funny that you mentioned the example that you did about uh, Stan McChrystal, because Chris Fossil was actually a guest here when that book came out. And he told oh, nice, the story. Nice. And immediately after that story, I went to our team and I said, how are we not using Slack? We need a consciousness <laughs> as a team. And it was yeah. amazing how, one, it sped things up drastically and it reduced the amount of email. And as a result, like bit by bit, we've built a number of different systems where information isn't in silos. And as a result, we are much more efficient. Totally. Yeah, we, we talk about it as work in public, right? So if you're starting a document, make it a document that anyone can find. Drop the link in Slack. If you're working on you know a pitch, Make the deck editable day one, you know, put things in places where people can find them. And as a group, agree on what your information architecture is going to be so that you have some discipline to it. Because obviously, you know, one of the big criticisms I hear from people about things like Slack is, oh, it's overwhelming and it's always on and it's one more thing in addition to email and it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, if you use a tool the wrong way, if you use the backside of a hammer to pound nails in, you're going to be frustrated, (laughs) right? So think carefully about, all right, wait a second, what are we actually doing here? Okay, one of the things we're doing with Slack is we're organizing our conversations around projects and themes so that we no longer have to wonder which thing in my inbox is most important. If I want to know about top projects, I can go right to those projects. If I want to know about important themes to me, I can go right to those themes and I can see the conversations when I want to see them about you know the topics I care about. I can subscribe to the topics I care about and leave the ones I don't. So there's a lot more agency in the individual to kind of go get what they need. Um, And I think so that, you know, that's a piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, you know, have an agreement with each other, have a service level agreement, have an SLA that says, all right, between the hours of nine and five, this is how we use this tool. Between the hours of five and the next morning, this is what we expect of each other. This is kind of, you know, how we're going to show up in these spaces. And, you know, don't let the tool just sort of emergently take over your life. So I think there's a lot of um, hygiene and discipline that goes into doing the information space right. Same thing, uh, we talk about push and pull a lot. So, you know, push communication was sort of the de facto in the old, you know, hierarchical bureaucratic model where people in power have the ability to tell everybody else a bunch of stuff over an email blast or what have you. Um, Pull is, what do you need? There's a way to go find it. So people ask me, you know, what's the status on that project? I'm not going to schedule a meeting. Go to the Trello board, click on the card. Find out what's going on with the project. If you have further questions, come to the status meeting, come to the action meeting, come to the, you know, the place where there's more info. But for that basic level of fidelity, just put it in places where people can find it and let them pull what they need 
rather than being pushed constantly. Yeah. So I had to ask you about this uh, because I just I looked at it and I was sort of jaw dropped. And you and I were talking about the fact that I had had a conversation about this with a client as well earlier uh, last week when I was teaching a workshop for them. The average employee checks their email 36 times per hour and receives 304 emails per week. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's mind blowing. So how much time do people spend actually doing this? And I think, you know, I told you, I just did some rough calculations and I came up with a theory that if you're paying somebody roughly a hundred grand a year, you equate that to $60 an hour and people spend $5, five hours a day on email. Basically companies are paying their employees $300 a day to check email. Totally. And it's all, it's all based on a flawed design, right? So the reason I have to use email so much is because the, all the things I do to create value require people that don't sit next to me, right? And so, you know, it, it exacerbated by the fact that I'm probably a millennial who's uncomfortable having a face-to-face conversation, but let's put that aside for a second. Um, so, you know, all the people I need to talk to are somewhere else. And so I'm working remotely, which means I'm doing all my coordination through, through email. Add that to the fact that, you know, by using email, there's a delay between every communication. So the whole thing is slowed down. There's, you know, there's not really a threading, right? So people are CCing and BCCing and coming on and coming off of the same information stream. And there's no reuse of information. So if I answer a question once to you in email and someone else asks, I have to answer it all over again. And so, you know, the, the sort of volume and frequency just goes up and up and up and up. And then because there's so much email, the likelihood that I'm going to get a response goes down because it's just simple math, right? Supply and demand. And so in order to get the responses I need, I tend to email more to express my urgency, to express my need, to make sure that you heard me, to double check, to, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so it just becomes this information sinkhole where all, you know, all important things go to die. Hmm. Well, um, well, let's do this. Let's talk about this last piece, which I think is is really kind of bringing us full circle. You talk about uh, membership, mastery, and, and compensation. Uh, I think that the thing that struck me in the membership section is you said that legacy organizations think about membership as binary, as a legal status or something that's conferred up on you, but membership isn't binary. Not every employee feels the same level of loyalty or inclusion or participation. No, membership is really a social status. It's an identity. It's a living agreement. Uh, how does that sort of play in? How do, how do all these things play into the operating system, this idea of membership in particular? Well, I think what's interesting about membership and, and what possibly makes it one of the most important spaces, in, you know, in, in the way we work is that um, if nobody shows up, nothing happens, right? So it's beautiful that we have a purpose and a structure and all these ideas about work. But if human beings don't show up to energize that stuff, then we're nowhere. And the what we know about people is that we are you know, we're tribal, we're social, we're, we're all about connection, we're all about meaning that's, that's sort of, um, you know, created through our relationships. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting to explore is, you know, aren't there so many different kinds of relationship in the firm? And aren't there some blurring lines happening right now that are really interesting? So, for example, you know, in the old model, I'm either an employee or I'm not an employee. And that's really it. And maybe I'm assigned to a project, but I don't really identify with that. And I don't really control where I spend my time and effort. But if you look at a more modern system, you know, I'm choosing to be part of an organization. I'm choosing the nature of that participation. So am I a fan? Am I uh, an employee? Am I a shareholder? Am I a volunteer? Am I an advisor? 
Am I a part-timer? Um, you know, how do I, you know, am I a gig economy participant? Like, how am I relating to the, the firm as a whole? And then within that, navigating what teams am I a part of? What projects am I a part of? What divisions or departments am I a part of? And what kinds of uh, norms and expectations go along with each of those things? So in most systems, when that stuff is not disclosed, when we don't talk about it, it's the whims of the boss that determine who's, you know, successfully uh, operating on a team or who gets to be on this group or that group, right? It's it's all trapped in somebody's head somewhere what the norms are about how we dress and how we talk and what we expect of each other and all that. But in more mature communities, it's explicit and we co-own it, we co-create it. And so I, I use the example of Burning Man in, in, in the book, but the idea that like there are a set of principles, there are a set of ways of, of being, there are behaviors, there are norms and expectations of like, if you're a burner, you're going to do these things. And that's what it means to be a part of. And then within a big organization, knowing how to navigate. So let's say I want to be a part of this team over there or that team over there, or I want to be considered a designer in this ecosystem what does that require? I think having more conversations about that, more explicit conversations and, and documentation about that, and then helping people navigate and manage their membership is really, really important because a strong, healthy membership where I, it you know tells me something about myself, my identity in the system is clear, my reputation in the system is clear, and how I move around you know throughout the different teams and circles that make up this thing. Um, is really, really important. And I, I like organizations that have started to think differently about that. I think if you look again at something like Airbnb, you know, not everything about that operating system is is perfect. But what I love about the membership model is when someone is, you know, participating, they can be simultaneously a guest, a host, an employee, a fan, you know, they're, they're, it's possible to hold many different kinds of membership at the same time. And it's really hard as a result to draw a line and say, this is where Airbnb ends and where it begins. It really blurs into culture in a way that I think makes it stronger than maybe a traditional hotel chain where the, you know, the line really ends at the property line. And, and there's nobody, nobody outside that property line really gives a shit. So I think that um, that's the big deal with membership. And it's a soft space. It's hard to navigate. It requires conversation and judgment and relationship. Um, but that's where the magic happens and, and the cultures that we, you know, aspire to be like are the ones that spend the most time in that, uh, in that space. So you wrap the operating system section by talking about both mastery and compensation. And I think what was interesting to me about mastery is that I never had any sense for the fact that I was headed towards mastery at a day job. Like it never crossed my mind until <laughs> I working as a professional creative where my obsession became mastery. Uh, so one you know, how do, how do you bring that into the, the workplace? I've, I've had the you know good fortune to talk to a lot of people who are the authorities on the subject of expertise and mastery, you know, Gay Hendricks on the zone of genius, uh, nice. Anders Ericsson on deliberate practice. And, and, you know, many of these people, one, why is this not a more common way to train within an organization? Like, why do we not breed people for mastery? Because uh, I'll tell you, there are things that struck me as really strained about my own experience. Granted, you know, set aside the fact that I got fired from all of my jobs and I suck at being an employee. But <laughs> the one thing that always struck me as odd was the performance improvement idea was, hey, you're awful at this. We're going to spend the next six weeks trying to make you an average at it in order to avoid a lawsuit when we're going to fire you anyways. Uh, so why is that? How do they shift that? And then how do you tie all that into the whole compensation idea? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I think what's interesting about the mastery space is that it does, you know, it goes right back to that model of thinking and doing where if we can define in a checklist 
or in a process what performance and competence looks like, then that's complicated work or simple work, right? That's the work of pick up this widget, put it on that table, pick up another one, put it on that table. And if you do 50 in an hour, then you are competent. <laughs> Um, and that's really where, and that's where we started. And so it's not surprising then that our models of training are sage on the stage, e, you know, e quizzes after watching bad video conference lessons, you know, curriculum that is basically based on regurgitation and memorization, um, or or replicating someone else's pattern. When you start talking about complex activity, creative activity, you know, activity that uses human judgment and human innovation, um, then it, you know, that's a mastery space. That's a space where you know, masters have things to teach to apprentices and where deliberate practice and where repetition and where exposure and experience really matter. And they matter because the knowledge is not just embodied in a fact. It's it's somatic. It's you have it in your body, you have it in your instinct, you have it in your, you know, kind of intuition about what to do. And you have, you know, uh, ways to document and express what you know. But what's amazing is those are not as easily transferred. Like you can write down everything you know about how to be, you know, an amazing creative director. And if another person that's never done that before reads all that, they are not an amazing creative director. Like, it, you know, reading and knowing are not the same as doing. And so I think the mastery space is about recognizing that, A, the work that's most valuable in the future is complex, dynamic, human, creative work. Everything else is going to be eaten by bots. So just know that. And then B, the way to get that is through lived experience with and among others, with masters, with with people that are learning with you and having a kind of a vulnerability and an openness to, you know, constant feedback loops, constant reflection. I mean, I think that's that's really at the heart of what this mastery stuff is all about. And I talk about, um, you know, the culture at Bridgewater in this chapter, which is uh, obviously very interesting and somewhat of an electric uh, you know, case study for people. Some love it, some hate it. But what I think is very interesting is there's just a tacit acceptance that if you're in that culture, you're going to be receiving constant feedback. And the purpose of that feedback is increasing your own mastery and your own sort of personal mastery about your, you know, the way you show up and your believability and your ability in the space. And it's it's on you to sort of turn that fodder into excellence, to turn that into into juice for your own development. Um, and I think every every culture could, you know, could go a long way in that direction, starting with just recognizing that, like, yeah, training is not going to happen in a training room. It's mostly going to happen in the work. Um, at best, in a room, we can get people to stop and reflect and notice and check in with themselves and, and sort of have epiphany. But um, but a lot of the a lot of the learning that really needs to happen needs to happen in the field. And so I think having more apprenticeship, more, um, you know, projects that are overstaffed with people that are learning. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we're, you know, starting to invest in. I mean, it sounds to me like training for competency is a, ma a recipe for mediocrity. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you even think you can define the right way to do something in 2018 is bonkers to me. Like, what's the right way to start and launch a podcast, right? Are you going to tell us that now? And then we can all have a, a number one podcast? Like, no, there's so much uncertainty and there's so much change and dynamics happening that, you know, that the, it's half luck for starters and the other half is is earned mastery. So yeah, I want to talk briefly about compensation. Uh, and the reason this really struck me is because it was so counter to everything that I had been taught uh, as somebody who had grown up basically being somebody, a, a box checker who checked off all the boxes of good school, you know, whatever it is. You said lacking purpose and meaning in their work, many professionals view careers nothing more than a series of stepping stones from one job title and pay package to another. 
I'd be lying to you if I didn't, if I told you that that was literally not, that's exactly how I viewed every single job I had up until I stopped having jobs. Absolutely. Why is that? Why is that? that like, this is not, this is a very new idea. Like when I was in college, nobody was telling us to think about things like this. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that when when compensation is linked directly to the structure and to the hierarchy, and when it's completely out of our control, um, we you know we start to take on the attitude that because of that, what we need to do then is uh, play the game, right? We need to go, you know, what's the best way to hack this system, right? We're amazing problem solvers, and so the way we're going to solve that problem is by playing the game and by politicking and by job hopping and by doing these sorts of things. When we start to disconnect that and look at compensation as a reflection of our mastery in, you know, in the marketplace and, and the value of our skills in a particular context, then we start to think about developing ourselves as the way to increase that value. And so I think it's, it is a shift both within the person and within the organization. If the organization isn't paying for skills in action, then developing yourself doesn't matter, although it may be personally satisfying. And if the person isn't willing to think about you know, sort of their value in those terms, then you know they won't be able to play the game either. So I think both sides need to accept that we're looking for skills in action. When we when we start looking for skills in action, we start working on our own uh, you know skills as a way to sort of define our value in the marketplace. Then everything gets uh, a little bit easier, or at least it gets a little bit more focused. I think that way we can separate the difference between performance and performance evaluation, which can be a reputational phenomenon and can be a peer based phenomenon from, you know, development and mastery, which is really a feedback, uh, you know, related mechanism from compensation, which is really about, you know, market value and skills in action. And, you know, the three obviously are highly interconnected and highly intertwined, but they, um, you know, they are separate and they, and they often live in different places and different times with different mindsets and attitudes. Mm. Where, if any, where have you gotten pushback, uh, from, people and organizations about all of this? I think what's interesting is in the last few years, originally, I think there was just pushback in general, right? Like this, you know, why, why do we have to do this? And this doesn't make sense. And this doesn't, you know, sort of square with me. What I think we hear now is a lot more openness and willingness to say, yeah, you know, these ideas make sense. These values and principles make sense. These cases are compelling. But now the question is, you know, A, how do we do it? So there's pushback about the feasibility and, the, and how realistic it is for organizations to go do this, to go from A to B in some way, or to kind of, you know, start this pattern of continuous participatory change. And then B, there's, there's a lot of pushback that comes in the form of sort of the, um, the ego defense mechanisms and the regression to the mean and the, you know, instincts and antibodies that crop up in times of stress. So somebody says, yeah, I'm totally on board, but their behavior tells a different story, right? Or the company gets, you know, gets going in these directions, and then uh, they hit a bad quarter and the bad quarter leads everybody to kind of gird their loins and go right back to old habits. So I think it's, um, you know, it's in those sort of reactions and those regressions that we see most of the resistance. I think in theory, a lot of people have really come around to the idea that, yeah, we want to live in a world with a lot more autonomy, a lot more transparency, a lot more kind of, you know, commitment to coming to a workplace that, you know, does more for us and does more for the, the community around us. For you personally, uh, through your own journey, what has been the lesson uh, either related to life or to work that has taken you the longest to learn? 
Well, I think um, for me, I'm still playing with the idea of, you know, what is the role of founder, creator, source, leader in, you know, in a world where there is increased, you know, accountability across the whole group and responsibility and and shared ownership and and autonomy right so like when when is it overstepping and when is it exactly within your role and within your power to influence the system in a certain way or to nudge folks in a certain way or to set something up as as a standard or a norm or an expectation i think that's incredibly interesting fertile you know challenging ground so I, I continue to learn lessons there, you know, every week. And I have a, an amazing team at the ready around the world that, you know, is happy to bust my chops when I over or understep. Um, and, you know, so that's been that's been a big one for me. And I think the the second one is really figuring out, you know, um, how to how to make sure that conflict in systems like this is generative. So, you know, we know that different opinions and diversity of perspectives is is necessary for creative creative energy. We know it's necessary for unlocking new, you know, new ideas. Um, so how do we have an environment where without an authority figure, we can engage in, you know, hearty dialogue and disagreement and conflict in a way that feels safe and healthy and productive to everyone involved. I think that's something that I've struggled with where I either over-index or under-index. I'm either, you know, too confrontational or non-confrontational. And I'm learning, you know, a ton right now about, you know, new ways to to speak and to listen, um, you know, in those kinds of conversations. Wow. Wow. Um, you have packed this with a lot of really valuable insights and nuggets, which has been fantastic. Uh, so I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? To me, uh, you know, being unmistakable is about authenticity. It's about, um, you know, knowing, what is true, really deep within you, within the organization, within the team. And the only way to know that is through inquiry and through reflection and through practice. So I think things become unmistakable when they have that learning gene, when they have that instinct to kind of continually tune in, continually listen, go deeper, try again, you know, pull another layer off the onion. And as we go, we're both building up the, the thing, the organization, the brand, the meaning, the, the person. And we're stripping down the, you know, our, our understanding of what it is at its essence. And so to me, that's, uh, that's what it means to be unmistakable. Mm, amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything that you're up to? Well, let's see. Uh, the book uh, has a newly launched website at bravenewwork.com. So that's a good place to start for that. And uh, for the work we do out in the world, theready.com uh, is, is the place to be. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.